As you're taking your seat, you can grab your Bibles and open them up to the book of Acts, chapter 7. Let me begin by reading our text this morning. Let's look together at beginning of verse 54. We're going to read all the way through chapter 8 to verse 4. So follow along in God's word with me. It says this, Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. History is filled with those who have met the same fate as Stephen, who have loved Christ even unto death who had suffered greatly for the cause of Christ and given their life for the sake of Christ. One of those such men was a man by the name of Diedrich Bonhoeffer, who was martyred at the end of the Second World War under the Nazi regime in a Nazi prison. And in his book, his famous book called The Cost of Discipleship, Diedrich Bonhoeffer said this in regards to suffering. He said, suffering is the badge of true discipleship. The disciple is not above his master, he wrote. Following Christ means passio passive, which means suffering because we have to suffer. That is why Luther reckoned suffering among the marks of the true church and one of the memoranda drawn up in preparation for the Augsburg Confession similarly defines the church as the community of those who suffer, or excuse me, who are persecuted and martyred for the gospel's sake. He goes on to say this, if we refuse to take up our cross and submit to suffering and rejection at the hands of men, we forfeit our fellowship with Christ and have ceased to follow him. But if we lose our lives in his service and carry our cross, we shall find our lives again in the fellowship of the cross with Christ. The opposite of discipleship is to be ashamed of Christ and his cross and all the offense which the cross brings in its train. Those who stand for Christ will often suffer as a servant of Christ. Stephen has taken his stand. He is a model for us of what it means to live both a life for Christ, but also to live in the midst of suffering for Christ and even to die for Christ. His entire life, even to the bitter end, is a model set forth for the church. He teaches us how to live well. He teaches us how 
to die well, and most importantly in this text, he teaches us how to suffer well for the sake of Christ. The church is filled with people who profess Christ, many of them who long to live for Christ, but many of them stay in a state of lethargy, many of them living in a place of spiritual apathy. And I read one story of a man who was shot in the midst of battle about many years ago, and as he lied, everybody thought he was dead. He was piled up in a heap of corpses thought to be dead, and he thought he was dying. He lied there with a hole in his chest, and he began to think that in moments he was going to come face to face with the God and Savior whom he professed to love, and yet he knew he was never really living for. And in that moment, lying there, he prayed to God, and he said, God, I'm not ready to meet you because I am ashamed. And I think many Christians might feel the same way if they thought right now about what it might mean to stand before the Savior who had died for them, the Savior who had given everything for them, if they were to look at their lives and even as a professing Christian, they would look and see that it is devoid of any kind of devotion to him. And so to stand before the one who has died and given all for us and then to have to look at him and say, I gave nothing for you, leaves us potentially in a place where we might be like this man saying, God, I'm ashamed if I was to see you now. And he can committed to that moment, this is, this is incredibly important, Listen, he committed to that moment, he prayed, God, if you allow me to live, I will live every day so that if I were to meet you at any day, I will not be ashamed. This is the place where I want to be. How about you? This is the place where God wants all of us to be as we follow Christ. He wants all of us to not slow up towards the end. And even, you know, I I think of the analogy of the athlete running a race uh, towards the end. It is the most painful. And sometimes in the Christian life, God is doing the greatest things during the most pain. And when we push through in the pain, when we strive to finish well, when we strive to run through the line, not crawl across the line, God is so greatly honored and glorified and the gospel of Jesus Christ is advanced with great power and effectiveness. And that is exactly what we see happening here in the life of Stephen. He is running strong to the end. He is running through the line. He is suffering well and he will die well. And what we see is a man who will stand as he sees a vision of his Savior Jesus Christ. He stands not ashamed. He stands with confidence that he had lived his life to the end, to the fullest for the sake of Jesus Christ. So how do we do this? How do we learn from Stephen how to live well, how to die well, how to suffer well? I would say first as we look at God's word, let's learn from Stephen that we need to be anchored by the truth of God. So many Christians fail to live well to die well and to suffer well because they are not anchored in the truth of God's word. They are not anchored by sound doctrine and sound theology. They're anchored or they lack an anchor because they're driven more by emotion, feelings, inadequate thoughts of God, Stephen does not fit that profile at all. He is a man, we know this as we've gone through the last chapter, that Stephen is a man who is full of faith, he's full of the Holy Spirit, he's so grounded in the word of God. At this point in the history 
of the early church, he'd been charged with blasphemy, you'll remember, against Moses and against God, against speaking against the, the law and the temple. And in the face of these trumped up charges, these false witnesses, he is unshaken, he is immovable, he refuses to be intimidated, and he is unashamed as he speaks. And he speaks with such boldness and such courage, so filled with the Spirit of God. Listen, so anchored in the truth of God's word, he begins to unfold the history of Israel. He links back to the word of God as they knew it. His entire speech is a strategic retelling of Israel's history. And you can't miss this. It's so grounded completely in God's perfect, authoritative, sufficient word. Now keep in mind that his suffering will be intensified. Listen, his suffering will be intensified because of his commitment to the word of God. Because of his commitment to the truth. And I would just submit to you that we should expect nothing less that the more committed we are to God's word, the more we hold fast to the truth of God's word, the more we long to live the truth of God's word, the more and the greater, the more intense the opposition is that we will face and potentially the suffering for the sake of Jesus Christ. We see here in verse 54, it says that now when they heard these things, These things being all of the truths from the word of God that he drove into pointed application. Remember, as he unfolded the history, he ended by saying that they were idolaters. They had worshiped the temple. They had made it something that God never intended them to make it. And instead of worshiping the God of the temple, they worshiped the temple as their God. Because that was their God, they resisted hearing God's greatest prophet, the Son of God, God in flesh, Jesus Christ, and instead they killed the righteous one. As they heard these things, and as he drove that application into their hearts, rather than breaking and folding and falling under the weight of conviction, they hardened their hearts even further, and they says they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. And the, the scene here is unbelievable. The amount of rage, you think about it. I mean, if you've ever been angry enough to start grinding your teeth, you know the kind of rage that was filling the hearts of these people. They had heard enough. We have this kind of reaction by many in the world today. They want nothing to do with our God. They want nothing to do with the truth of the gospel. They want to hear nothing about what we believe. And in fact, some are infuriated by what we believe. Our commitment to God's truth will often incite opposition and suffering. Mark that down, Christians. But listen, it will also, here's the helpful part, it will also increase our ability to face opposition and to suffer well. Here, Stephen makes his defense, and they're enraged, and they're grinding their teeth, but he doesn't budge. The opposition in suffering, you see, test our foundations, and they test our fidelity. It exposes, when we face opposition in suffering, the strength or weakness of the foundational beliefs we say we are committed to, and it reveals either the strength or the lack of strength, the weakness of those commitments. 
I remember as a, a young kid, my, my dad used to take us boys camping all the time. We'd go up to Algonquin Park and, um, and, and you know, he taught us all the outdoorsy kind of stuff and we used to love it. And uh, I remember one time in particular, we were camping with our cousins and we, you know, I think there were some tornado warnings, but there was a storm that was just raging outside and we had multiple tents set up and, and, and you know, if my brother and my cousin and, and I can't remember if I was, I can't remember how it all unfolded. I just know that one tent was abandoned completely and everybody jumped in the, the other tent because it was just so chaotic. And when we got up in the morning, the, the one tent that had been abandoned had blown away into the trees. Now, I, I think that in many ways, many Christians are just like that. And it's, it's no surprise because we understand what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, right? That many Christians can be tossed around by waves of doctrine or, or the wind can blow people to and fro if they're not anchored and mature in the faith of Jesus Christ. And I would just submit to you that we need to be anchored deeply into God's word. We need to be like a tent. You know, I remember you know, the, the, the foundational aspects of a tent. Once you put the tent down, you have to you grab the pegs and drive them deep into the ground. Make sure that every corner is anchored down by a peg, driven hard into the ground. Christians, we need to be like that. We need to be anchored. We need to be picking up the hammer of God's word and driving the pegs deeply into the ground. You know, the Apostle Paul talks a lot about uh, the, the desire he has for the church to grow in their knowledge of the word of God and the will of God. Uh, listen to what Paul says in Colossians 1, verses 9 and 10 on the screen behind me. It says this, and so from the day we heard, here's his prayer, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Why is that, Paul? So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. He wants our lives anchored deeply in the knowledge of God. Listen, Christian, you cannot be anchored in life. You cannot face suffering. You cannot face death faithfully as a Christian unless you are growing in the knowledge of God's word and the wisdom and application of God's word, driven deep. He says the same thing. He prays for the church in Philippi, Philippians 1, 9 and 10. It says this, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ Jesus. Opposition will reveal the strength of our convictions. Suffering will reveal the strength of our convictions. And I would just encourage you, church, listen, don't wait for the storm to come before you nail down the tent. It's hard to run out into the midst of a tornado to drive the pegs down. It's nearly impossible. You're more liable to be blown around. Make sure it's anchored long before the storms arrive because Christian, if you haven't figured this out yet, listen, it's not if they come, it's when they come. How do we do this? Well, let me just give you just a few quick applications of this and I think they flow in one sense out of the book of Acts. One thing we need to remember is this, the book of Acts is laying out the foundational reality and authority of the church of Jesus Christ. This is the building of the church and so I just wanna suggest to you, you need a high level of commitment to the local church. If you're gonna be grounded, if your pegs are gonna be driven down deep, you need to be committed to the local church. 
The gospel is spreading. The power of God is spreading. The authority of God is being manifested through the local church here and now. It is the institution God has chosen to use to further his kingdom. And the more you embrace that, the more you get that, the better it will be for your Christian life and the strength and health of your Christian life. Paul said it like this, the church is the pillar and buttress of the truth. This is the place where the truth is protected. It is the place where the truth is heralded. It is the place where the truth is loved and cherished. Make gathering with the local church a priority in your life. Do this. Secondly, have a high commitment to regular fellowship with Christians. And I think we see this manifested in the life of the early church. Yes, they gathered together in a local assembly, but they met regularly together. They were constantly being involved in one another's lives. And that's because God's word tells us that the Christian life is to be lived in community, in regular fellowship with one another. And I would urge you, one of the ways we do this in the life of our church is through our small group ministry. It's not the only way, but it is a way we want to help facilitate a Christian fellowship outside of Sunday gatherings, going deep in our lives with one another, pressing the word of God into each other's lives, holding each other accountable to the truths of God's word. If you're not in a small group, get into a small group. Third thing, have a high commitment to daily reading and studying God's word. I mean, these are all, we all know these things, I think. If you're, you know, some of this shouldn't be a surprise to you, but I think we fail so often in some of these areas, the, the foundations, and so we're shaky, not as anchored as we could be. But we need, as Christians, to have a high commitment to daily reading and study. And some of us have commitments to never miss a certain show or shows that we watch, right? Our nights are blocked off to make sure we don't miss this. Or we have events on our calendar, maybe it's sporting events or kids' activities that we have committed to, and so we will not miss, we block out the time. And listen, Christian, if God's word and time in prayer with the Lord are not your priority, you will be shaky as a follower of Christ. I have a high commitment, lastly, to live and apply the truths of God's word. We're all about this here. We're not simply about uh, gaining knowledge for the sake of knowledge. We're all about, listen, I I say this from the pulpit all the time. I'm not preaching for information. We're preaching here for transformation. We don't study simply for information. We study the word of God for transformation in our lives. Amen? That's what we're after. Apply the truth. Allow the conviction to change the way you think, the way you live. Stephen here is a man who's so committed to the word of God, it's got him in a whole heap of trouble. He's so anchored, though, that he's immovable. Secondly, notice this, he lives well, he dies well, he suffers well because of what we need to embrace. I think he's consumed with gazing at the glory of God. And this is an incredible moment here in this text, and it is one that very few people in the history of the world have been privy to. He's given a vision of the throne room of God, and don't miss the connection here, okay? Here's a really important theological connection to the previous section. Remember what he's been accusing them of. You worship the temple. You miss the fact that the temple is pointing to the presence of God. You've missed the fact that the temple is all about the Savior Jesus Christ, 
And then all of a sudden, listen, God then allows him, in the midst of the rejection of these truths, he stops, he looks up, and he gazes into, listen, he gazes into the throne room of God. He gazes into the true temple of God. He sees, listen, the fulfillment of the the substance of the shadow that they worshiped. This is an ironic just rebuke to the nation of Israel, and they refuse to see it. And throughout the Bible, there have been those who have seen the throne room of God. They have a vision of the throne room of God. Isaiah, Daniel, Stephen, Paul, Ezekiel. Getting a glimpse of things that so few have been able to see in this life and this time. You have to notice here, look at verse 55. This is such an important reality. He, but he being full of the Holy Spirit. I mean, this is so often said about Stephen, we should be getting the hint by now that this is critical to the Christian life. To be filled with the Holy Spirit. This is the mark of Stephen's life, and it should be the mark of every Christian. Do not get drunk on wine, Paul says, but be being filled with the Spirit. This is the constant pursuit of the Christian life, and it is something, by the way, that doesn't just happen passively to us. It's something that requires active obedience to the Word of God. So so you can just take what we had. If you're anchored in the truth of God's Word, and if you're living that out, the natural byproduct of that is that you're going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. But if you remove that first piece, you cannot then be filled with the Holy Spirit. Stephen is a man who exemplifies, doesn't he, what it means to live for Jesus Christ. He looked like Jesus because he couldn't take his eyes off of Jesus. That is so critical for us to understand. It's so important for my own heart this morning to keep my eyes on Jesus Christ. And here, he really gets to place his eyes on Jesus Christ, doesn't he? He gets to see Jesus Christ gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. I I circle that word, he gazed into heaven. I mean, the Holy Spirit opened his eyes to get a glimpse of heaven, and here's what you need to see. When he caught a glimpse, he couldn't avert his gaze. The sight was something to behold. I don't think we can fathom what it might be to gaze into heaven. I I, I don't think our minds can adequately comprehend what it must have been like to be Stephen at that moment. To see a vision of the glory of God. Remember, this is the thing that Moses begged God to see. God, show me me your glory, God. If there's one thing that Moses wanted, it was to see the glory of God. And here, Stephen is being opened up to this picture of the glory of God in the throne room. And Jesus is standing at the right hand of God in the position of authority and power. Now, before we pull this apart, let's just acknowledge that this experience is rare. There are very few people who have had this privilege of gazing into heaven, but God did this, listen, by the power of the Spirit, 
for him, and this should bring us comfort. Listen, every Christian, every believer who suffers, I believe that God can supply a special grace. There are countless stories of those who are martyred. You know, we often ask ourselves, you know, when you you hear the stories of the martyrs and those uh, who willingly gave their lives, we ask the question, don't we? I I wonder if I could do that. I wonder what I would do in that circumstance. If somebody put a gun to my head and said, I'm going to kill you if you don't renounce Jesus Christ, what would I do? And I would just say, you know, in our flesh, we would all tremble and renounce our faith in Christ. But listen, the power of the Holy Spirit within us, I believe this. So often we see, and we've seen this throughout history, God gives a special grace to those who are standing in the face of persecution. He allows them to stand in his power and in his grace to make a stand for Jesus Christ. And so while we can say, I think, with full confidence in ourselves, we would crumble under the pressure. I believe that God wants us to know that with his spirit within us, we can stand firm regardless of what happens. And I think this applies to all areas of the Christian life, not just martyrdom, but for suffering for the cause of Christ, for suffering in general. You know, suffering often produces so much heartache, doesn't it? It produces feelings of loneliness, of despair, of isolation. Some of you are experiencing and have experienced to great degrees what it means to suffer. And I I think that as you read this text, one of the things that we can find comfort and hope in, listen, is this, that God's presence is near to those who suffer. Especially those who suffer for the sake of his name. It's a moment here of comfort that those who suffer can draw upon. So if you're suffering this morning, if you're feeling the weight of the world, if you're suffering because of the circumstances of life, can you just look at this text and see that God draws near to those who are suffering, that God will not leave you or forsake you, that God loves you, that God can be your strength, that God can be your rock and your refuge, that you are not alone. Philip read it this morning, and let me just put it on the screen for you again. 1 Peter 4, 14 through 16, just to be encouraged by this. Listen, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, remember, remember, just pause for a second. Listen, remember who Peter is writing to. Peter is writing to a church that is suffering unbelievable wickedness and injustice. I mean, they're suffering under the reign of Nero. I've said this before, but let me just paint the picture again. Nero is taking Christians, and he's putting them, he's piercing them through alive on poles, and he is sticking them in his garden, and he is torching them for his garden parties. We're talking about unbelievable suffering. And listen to what Peter says. He says, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Listen, I I believe this is God's special grace, right? If you're suffering for Christ, you're not alone. The spirit of God is with you. He will empower you. He will comfort you. He will strengthen you. But let none of you, just in case it's unclear with your suffering this morning, let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Don't suffer because of your own sin. If you're doing that, that's your deal. You've got to make that right with God. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian... For the sake of Christ, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. 
The Spirit grants grace to persecuted believers, enabling them to glorify God in their deaths. Stephen was the prototype for countless thousands of Christian martyrs whose deaths have confirmed that truth. But let me suggest to you that this kind of comfort comes to those particularly, particularly who are like Stephen, who are full of the Holy Spirit. I think there is a connection here. You know, those who live for him instead of trying to use him. Stephen was a man filled with the word of God. He had a deep longing to live for the glory of God. And this is the picture of the, his life that we have. So in the moment of need, he was enabled to see clearly and the Holy Spirit was able to draw upon the reserves of God's word, the life that was committed. Just notice again that word that he was gazing. He couldn't take his eyes off the glory of God. I mean, the scene, you have to remember, the scene is that everybody is enraged and everybody is grinding their teeth. I mean, this is probably a noisy, chaotic situation. And yet here is this man gazing up into the sky and he must have looked crazy to them because none of them could see what he was seeing. In times of suffering, aren't we so tempted to find comfort in a multitude of people, places, and things? Aren't we so tempted to place our eyes on things of this world, on things that can provide only temporary relief, temporary satisfaction, temporary reprieve from the pain that we feel? Isn't that why the world around us is so broken and so many Christians are, are living like the world, finding, finding their comfort in things like sex and sexual immorality or things like substances, alcohol and drugs or things like the pleasures of this world, entertainment and trying to numb the pain. And you, you know whatever it is that you run to, it fits into this category here. And Stephen just reminds us, he teaches us that if we fix our eyes on the God of all glory, if we can focus on Jesus Christ, our suffering may not be, listen, it may not be utterly alleviated, but it will be sufficiently diminished. Like a child focused on the sweet taste of candy will often forget the pain of the injury. So too the Christian who is fixated on the sweetness of the Savior will forget the pain of suffering. The pleasures of Christ overcome the pain of suffering. There's a sense here in which we are supposed to get a lot out of this short little vision that Stephen is reiterating. You see, it's more than just a moment of personal comfort. That's there for sure, but it is so much more than that. This is also a moment of vindication. And it's important that we recognize this. Did you notice anything unique about what Jesus is doing in this vision? He's standing. So why is that unique? Well, where is Jesus, what is Jesus usually doing whenever he is referenced in the New Testament at the right hand of God? He's sitting. What's the significance to him standing? Because surely there is significance. Well, first, some scholars say this. Some scholars say that this is supposed to demonstrate, again, God's love for Stephen and that Jesus is standing to welcome the, the soon-to-be-martyred Stephen into his presence. And that's a beautiful thought, isn't it? I love that thought. That God is looking and God is cherishing his child who is about to give his life for the sake of Christ and he stands and you can almost picture the scene with his arms open saying, come to me, my child. 
beautiful comfort in that picture, but it's more, it's more than just that. You see, when we read in Scripture of the risen, exalted Jesus, he's always sitting, and there's a reason for that, isn't there? There's a very important reason for the reality that Jesus is said to be seated at the right hand of God. And Hebrews chapter 10 gives us that reason. So it's on the screen. You can turn there if you want, but it'll be on the screen behind me. Just, just here's the theology that behind this, the Old Testament theology, it helps us understand why Jesus is seated. And every priest, it says, stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Now pause here, look at me for a second, listen. This was the reality of the Old Covenant, okay? Sacrifice after sacrifice was brought into the temples. We talked about this last time. Right? The temple was so significant because their sacrifices need to be offered and the priesthood needed to be there to intercede, you know, to take the sacrifices and offer them on behalf of the people to God. And, and the sacrificial system never ended. It was constant year after year, decade after decade, you know, hundreds of years, thousands almost. And, and now what we see is this, that all of a sudden, listen, in all of this system, the priest's job was to stand and offer the sacrifice. Their job was never done because the sins were never fully paid for. Right? It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. These things were never intended. Those sacrifices could never take away sins. They could only point towards what could take away the sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. The great high priest was the final sacrifice, and once, it was sacri- once he was sacrificed, the sins were paid for in full, and there was no more sacrifice than needed to be done. Christian, there's nothing else you can do to pay for your sins. It's been paid in full on Jesus Christ, amen? So our Savior, the great high priest, and the great beautiful sacrifice, the Lamb of God, he sat down because the job was finished. That's his normal position, seated at the right hand of God. The scene is reminding us of that reality but it's telling us that in one sense, Jesus is standing at the right hand of God because he needs to be vindicated. There's a sense in which Jesus is standing to vindicate the message that Stephen has just preached, to stand in support and say, I am behind that, but he's standing to vindicate himself as the Messiah. And there's a direct reference here. You'll notice it says there, I see, he says, this, and the, the heavens opened up, and the Son of Man. That reference is incredibly important. You see, this is the only time outside of the Gospels that the reference Son of Man, the title Son of Man is used for Jesus. And there is a direct link back to the book of Daniel, Daniel 7, verse 12 and 13. When Daniel sees a vision, the same vision that Stephen is seeing of the throne room of God, but in that vision we see this, the Son of Man comes and stands before the Ancient of Days. In the ancient of days, God the Father gives all authority and power and dominion to the Son of Man. And in that vision, the picture is this, the Son of Man will vindicate himself before the world one day. That he will come back with vengeance upon all those who will not bow the knee to Jesus Christ. And the scene here is this, and you gotta, this is why they're going to get so infuriated because they understand the reference is a reference back to judgment of those who won't believe. They just don't believe they fit that. 
And so Stephen's saying, I see, I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And what he's saying is this, I see the one who's going to judge you for your rebellion and your unbelief. I see the one who's going to come back and exact vengeance. I see the one who is the ruler of all things. And here's where they're at. They're stubbornly resisting the truth that Jesus was the Messiah. And so they cannot embrace the fact that he, the one they killed, is the one who will come back and exact vengeance. And so here is Jesus, as Stephen sees him standing, as rendering his verdict upon the unbelieving Jews, and he stands and he says, guilty, you're guilty. And so as we've just pulled this apart a little bit. Listen, loved ones, listen, we might think of it like this. What joy it is to know that Jesus stands to greet all those who trust, who have trusted him for their salvation. But what terror it is to know that he stands in judgment of all those who refuse to bow to the knee. He is anchored by the truth of God. He is gazing at the glory of God. And he is dying for the life of God. They're so infuriated at this. They cry out with a loud voice and they stop their ears. They're plugging their ears. Imagine the scene. They're so enraged. I can't hear any more of this. This is blasphemy. And they rush at him. And then they drag him out of the city and they stone him there. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. They appear to forego the legal means of justice. This is not following the typical protocol for executing a condemned criminal. They've taken justice into their own hands, and this is more of a mob mentality. You see, typically when somebody was stoned under the law, uh, they were dragged outside of the city. They needed to be outside the bounds of the city, but typically they were pushed off of a, about a 10-foot cliff. They were pushed off, fallen below, and then somebody would take a giant boulder and drop it on top of their chest from above. And if they managed to live after that, somebody else would take another large boulder and try to drop it on top of their head. And if they still lived after that, they would go down, they would take off of their their, uh, robes, tie them around their waist, and they would pelt the person to death with rocks. Here, it seems like they've simply grabbed them, they've rushed outside the city, and they've taken off their coats, and they've laid them at the feet. You'll notice whose feet they laid them at. Very important to see what's happening here is there's going to be a transition to the ministry of the Apostle Paul, whose name will be changed from Saul to Paul. But for now, just listen. Here is Saul, this young man at the time, supporting all that's being done. He was part of this, a part of this verdict. He's a part of this angry mob, and they lay down their coats at his feet. And as you think about the, the murder here of Stephen, again, just Think about the parallels with the death of Jesus here. The unjust murderer from start to finish is so reminiscent of the murder of Jesus Christ. And as Stephen was dying, he teaches us about life. He teaches us two things in particular by uh, the, the two things he says at the end of his life with his dying breaths. The first thing he teaches us is that death is not the end. Death is not the end. Listen to what he says. As they're stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. 
This is so similar to what Jesus said in Luke 23, 46. The only difference being that, that Jesus said, Lord, Father, into your hands I trust, I entrust my spirit. Now I want you to see this here. Stephen is speaking in this to Jesus Christ, which here is an argument for the deity of Jesus Christ. He's, you know, what, what Jesus did in entrusting his spirit to God the Father, Stephen does in entrusting his spirit to Jesus Christ because they're one and the same. They're equal. This is a reminder, too, that all those who die in Christ, listen, will truly live. Listen, today, all around the world, there are hundreds of people who are dying for the sake of Jesus Christ. There are hundreds of people who are being persecuted for the sake of Jesus Christ, who are suffering because of their love for Jesus Christ. What is it that gives them strength in the midst of that kind of suffering? What is it that can carry you through? What's the hope that we have? Is it not this, that death is not the end for the believer in Jesus Christ? We need not fear death. So the Christian says, take my life. Because in taking my life, that's actually the greatest thing you can do for me. Notice too that the expectation of Stephen was that he would immediately go into the presence of God. The Bible does not speak of any kind of holding tank for the soul. There is no purgatory that the Bible speaks of where the souls of the dead go uh, to await some kind of uh, judgment to go into the presence of God or the presence of hell. The Bible does not support any kind of soul sleep. The Bible says that In the moment of death, the soul is released and goes either into the presence of God or into the presence of darkness. The Apostle Paul said to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Jesus said to the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. For the believer, death is not the end. Our great confidence in the face of death is that we will be ushered into our greatest life. And contrary to popular belief in some Christian authors, this is not your best life now and it never will be. Your best life now, the actual book was written by Jesus Christ and it comes later. It comes in heaven, in the presence of Jesus Christ, in the fullness of Jesus Christ, where there is no sin, there is no more suffering, there are no more tears, there is no more pain, and there is no more sorrow. See, Christians, we look forward to that day. We live not for this life, but for the next. The greatest comfort in death is the confidence of eternal life. Do you have that this morning? Stephen secondly teaches us this, that life is found in Christ. Life is found in Christ. And this is just staggering. Listen to what he says as he cries out with his dying breath and falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. That's the Christian way of saying that he died, right? Because we know that those who die in Christ never truly die, that they are actually alive. While the mob, this is the contrast here, while the mob is so filled with hatred, Stephen with his dying breath expresses love and compassion for those who are murdering him. Just like Jesus, isn't it, who hung on the cross? Do you see the parallels? 
As Jesus prayed for those who put him to death, so too Stephen prays for those who are taking his life. He asks God to forgive them, which is the same thing as pleading with God for their salvation. Do you see that? There is no forgiveness without salvation. So what Stephen is saying is, God, save these people, God. Open their blind eyes. God, remove the scales from their eyes. And I just, I'm so convicted by this because how differently do we think about our enemies, right? I mean, remember what Jesus said? What did he say we were supposed to do for those who persecute us? Pray for them. We were to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us, but, but let's be honest for a second. When we read about those who are massacring Christians across the world, what is our gut reaction to that? What, what, what do we feel inside? Isn't there some kind of, of hatred and bitterness and this overwhelming sense of, God, would you just smite them? God, would you just take them all out? Would you destroy them, Lord, for their evil? We feel that sense, don't we? There is a sense of, of rage we feel inside. I wonder how quickly we are to then turn and say, God, would you save those people? God, those are lost sinners. Those are people who are dead in their trespasses and sin. And God, if they die today, they will not go into your presence of blessing. They will go into the presence of your wrath. And listen, God forbid we wish that on anybody God forbid we wish that on anybody, no matter how grievous their sin, no matter how horrendous their crime, God forbid that we would ever ask God to punish somebody for eternity in hell. God forbid, uh, God help us to pray for the salvation of those even who hate us and hate our gods. I mean, with his dying breath, listen, with his dying breath, he is offering life. Isn't that amazing? With his dying breath, he's not concerned about his body. He is concerned about the souls of his enemies. Let's just let that sink in for a minute. While in physical agony, because you have to believe, this is such a painful event that he's going through. This is so traumatic to the body. He is just in absolute agony, and yet he is in greater agony over the souls of the lost. I mean, how often do we pray for our unbelieving friends, let alone our unbelieving enemies? I was so rebuked by by this thought when we went to the the men's conference not long ago, and we were just rebuked. Like, do we agonize over the lost? I mean, mean, do we say, do we really love people? Do we really love their souls? Do we really long to see people saved? Or are we too busy filling our minds with television to get on our knees? Are we too distracted by the pleasures and the pursuits and hobbies of this life to get on our knees and beg God to save people? I just tell you honestly, I'm so convicted by this. I just I wrestle with this in my own heart and I see I see the sin in my own heart in this and my like, God help us, amen. How weak we are, how fickle we are, how quick we are to spend time on worthless things. And yet, what an example we have of one who will plead for the souls of even his enemies. Stephen is a model of dying for Christ physically, but listen, he's a model of what it means to die to ourselves daily. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me, Jesus said in Luke 9, 23. 
This is the daily call of the Christian life. We die to get salvation, and then daily we die to ourselves. We die to our own pleasures, to our own affections, to the lust of our flesh, and we die so that we might live for him. And how hard is this? How painful it is, and how often we fail. Bonhoeffer said this in his book, The Cost of Discipleship. He said, the cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ suffering which every man must experience is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. I mean, that should be enough to sufficiently rebuke all of us, right? It is that dying, he says, of the old man, which is the result of his encounter with Christ. No one encounters Jesus who does not die to himself. You will not encounter Christ daily if you do not die to yourself daily. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. Thus it begins, he says, the cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Every command of Jesus is a call to die with all our affections and lusts, but we do not want to die, he says. And therefore, Jesus Christ and his call are necessarily our death as well as our life. Every day, listen, there are new temptations and every day we must suffer anew for Christ's sake. Are you dying to live? Are you dying to live? Finally, we see the necessity of trusting in the plan of God. You want to live well, you want to die well, you want to suffer well in this life, you need to be trusting in the plan of God. Stephen falls asleep in the Lord, he wakes in the presence of his Savior. Chapter 8, verse 1, and Saul approved of his execution, setting the stage for what's coming in the following chapters. And there arose on that day, look at this, look at this. Want, want to know what the result of this death of Stephen was, look at the catalyst his death was. There arose that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. Things were stirred up, riled up against the church, and they were all scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. And devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But notice this, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and he committed them to prison. And if you think that the persecution was successful in stopping the advancement of the gospel, just look at verse four. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. You see how the plan of God was unfolding here. The persecution against the church had the opposite effect that Satan had designed for it. Instead of shutting the church down, it exploded in growth. People forced to flee Jerusalem to save their lives ended up bringing with them life eternal. And rather than living in fear because of the death of Stephen, they were filled with courage. And they preached, and they preached, and they preached. Stephen's death was not in vain. You see, this is part of a greater, more glorious plan of God. 
And, and again, you, you notice that God, this is what Luke is trying to say. There's a greater plan unfolding here. You want to know why Saul is mentioned twice? There's a greater plan unfolding here. Satan's persecution promoted the very thing it was designed to destroy. And as we experience, listen, suffering and persecution, we need to trust that God is working out his perfect plan, that God actually has designed a plan, and in the midst of the suffering, listen, I understand this, and and I'm not making light of suffering, in the midst of suffering, it's hard to see and believe this sometimes. And I believe, like Stephen, sometimes in this life, we will never know the effect that our suffering well and dying well will have on others. Stephen never saw the explosive growth of the church. Think about that. He didn't know when he died if things were going to be shut down or if they were going to continue to flourish. He had no idea. He just knew he had to be faithful. Oh, how he must be looking down from heaven if God allowed him to see and know what was going on, amazed that God would use this devastating event as a catalyst for the kingdom advancement. Few things in this life, listen, can do for us what suffering can. Few things in this life can do for us personally what suffering can. Suffering is the furnace so often of God's refining work in our life. The way in which he wants to make us like Jesus. And Christian, listen, the way out of suffering is so often through suffering. Jesus, let Jesus be your model. Jesus prayed, God, if you can take this cup away, Lord, let it pass. Don't be afraid to pray, God, take this suffering away, but pray also what Jesus prayed, Lord, if not, your will be done, not mine. Few things can do in the world what suffering can. The church father, Tertullian, wrote, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Persecution is the plan of God to reach the lost. That's amazing to think about. As we just think about this final section, let me just give you a few principles that we can draw out of here. First is this, don't write people off. Don't write people off. God can take his greatest enemies and make them his greatest ambassadors, church. St. Augustine said this, he said, without the prayer Of Stephen, there would be no Paul. God knew what he was doing here. Here is a man who is supporting this work, who is a persecutor of the church, that God was going to redeem, he was going to break, and he was going to transform, and he was going to use as the greatest missionary on the face of the planet. Don't write people off. Don't write your enemies off. I wonder, I wonder if we would do what Stephen did, if we might see God rescuing and redeeming those now who are terrorists against the church, who would become ambassadors for Jesus Christ. Don't write people off. Don't stop praying. Don't stop praying. Pray that God would save those who resist him. Don't give up. Don't give up hope. Uh, God can save the hardest of sinners. God can shatter the hardest of hearts. And then lastly, don't stop preaching. In the midst of suffering, 
God is giving you a platform to proclaim the glorious grace of Jesus Christ. Suffer well. Proclaim Jesus as the only hope for your soul. Don't stop preaching. There was a man in 2013 by the name of Ronnie Smith. He was uh, shot and killed in Benghazi, Libya on a Thursday. He was 33 years old. He was a husband and father. He was serving the church in Libya. He was a teacher there. He had given his life to go and help these people for the gospel of Jesus Christ. John Piper wrote an article about Ronnie because a book that he wrote had an incredible influence on Ronnie's life, on Ronnie's call to go to Libya. He says this, John Piper does, he says, one of the reasons I want to respond is because Ronnie wrote to us at Desiring God last year and told us that one of my messages was significant in leading him and his family to Libya. Now Anita, his wife is a widow and his son Hosea has lost his father. And here's what he goes on to say. Listen, he says, Ronnie is not the first person who has died doing what I have encouraged them to do. And he won't be the last. If I thought death were the worst thing that can happen to a person, I would be overwhelmed with regret. But the whole point of Ronnie's life is that there is something worse than death. So he was willing to risk his own life to rescue others from something far worse. And he could risk his own life because he knew his own risking and dying would work for him, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4.17, an eternal weight of glory that is beyond all comparison. And he knew God was able to meet every need of his wife and son. He says, we are not playing games. When I preach that risk is right, I know what I am doing. When I say God is most glorified in us, when we are most satisfied in him, especially in suffering, I know what suffering may mean. When I say fear not, you can only be killed, as Matthew 10, 28 says, I take seriously the words of Jesus, some of you they will put to death, but not a hair on your head will perish. Missed other things, he says, he closes with this. He says, finally, I call thousands of you to take Ronnie's place. They will not kill us fast enough. Let the replacements flood the world. We do not seek death. We seek the everlasting joy of the world, including our enemies. If they kill us while we love them, we are in good company. Jesus did not call us to ease or safety. He called us to love for the sake of his name, everywhere among all peoples. He says, Anita and Hosea, I love you. I am sorry, so sorry for your loss. I admire you and Ronnie profoundly. Hold fast to this. God has not destined you or Ronnie for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. That is our hope, isn't it? We give all so that others might know him and live with him. We give all so that we might experience the joy of living with him. The author of Hebrews tells us this. I'll invite the ushers to come forward as we prepare our hearts for offering. You can prepare your hearts by just listening to this. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. 
Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight in sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. 